Today's reading comes from Ephesians 4 through Ephesians 5. The verse is written in your Bible, in the bulletin, or on your app. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, we're actually going to be including verse 31 as well, um, which says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Before we get to the, the nice part. So, just thought I'd mention that. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through Ephesians 4 where we've been camped out for the last couple of months. And uh, we've been talking about the ideas of putting off uh, the old self and putting on the new self. Um, And the idea is that Christ has made his people new. If our faith is in Christ, then our sinful human nature has been put to death with him in his death. But also in his resurrection, he has raised up a new through is how do we now live in light of this? How do we inhabit this new identity that Jesus has purchased for us with his very blood? And this has a personal component to it, but the Apostle Paul has framed the discussion here in Ephesians 4 as one for the church. And so we are talking about what this looks like in a corporate context. What does it look like to put off the old self and to put on the new self within the context of Christian community, right? And we spent the last number of weeks working through verses 25 to 30 and through this list of practical applications that the Apostle Paul has laid out there. And we've seen how lying and selfish anger and um, stealing and cutting people down with our words, these are all things that belong to the old self, And we've seen how speaking the truth in love and how uh, controlling our anger and how uh, being generous with one another and building one another up with our words are are things that belong to this new self. And I know from talking to a number of you um, that this series has been challenging us. It's been giving us pause to reflect on our own lives and uh, hold them up to this standard. And if you're anything like me, you've been feeling really convicted. And so if this is you, I've got great news for you today. I've got good news for everybody, actually. But, um, in our text today, Paul seems to be suggesting that we are all prone to sinning against one another in these ways. Right? None, none of us is uh, free from this. Um, And if we are actually partnering together in the gospel, if we are actually acting as members of one body, 
then we are going to bump up against one another and wrong each other. Um, and so the type of proximity and the access required of being members of one another is, is going to make this inevitable. And so Paul tells us to prepare ourselves for when this, these things inevitably happen. And we're going to consider how to respond as members of Christ's body uh, when we are sinned against one another. What does it mean for us as a church to walk with one another in love as Christ has loved us? And so, in just a moment, we're going to dive into the text. I'm going to look at a few different things. And if you're a note taker, um, we're going to organize our study this morning into three simple categories. Um, the first two should be fairly familiar by now, if you've been around. Um, we're going to talk about what, it, what we are being told to put off first. We're going to discuss what we are being called to put on secondly, and then Lastly, we're going to see how Paul helps us to understand how everything that we've been talking about over the last number of weeks has actually been made possible for us. 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So Paul gives a whole list here. And there are a number of different ways to break this list down. Um, but ultimately, I think they're all trying to capture the idea that Paul is trying to be comprehensive in this list here. And he's trying to cover all his bases. Um, and so I take the first. And the second two, clamor and slander together, they deal with how we act on those emotions externally. And then the last one, malice, I, I take as addressing the fundamental heart attitude towards one another. And that's what undergirds all of these. And so we'll look at those three categories. Um, bitterness and wrath are both examples of sinful anger. To be bitter is to hang on to lingering feelings of resentment, allowing them to sour you. This is a slow-burning form of anger that replays an offense over and over and over again in the theater of your mind all the while becoming more and more convinced but at the very same time it isn't interested enough in resolving the situation to do anything constructive about it. In fact, though they might not admit it, if you talk to them long enough, um, bitter people often seem to actually enjoy holding grudges. So rather than doing something about it, they'll just stew on it and allow it to corrode their souls. And there's a well-known uh, saying about bitterness that was popularized by AA, actually, and there are uh, different variations of it, but it goes something like this. Bitterness is the poison that you drink, hoping that the other person will drop dead. Bitterness is absolutely self-destructive. It may feel empowering for a time, but there is absolutely nothing healthy or helpful about it. Next, he mentions wrath. Um, the NIV translates this as rage. It's maybe a little bit more familiar to us. Um, and this is, a, it's a little bit, it's kind of the opposite of bitterness, actually. It's a, it's a more explosive form of anger that will not be contained and demands to be acted on immediately to balance the scales and to make the perpetrator pay. We all tend to default towards one of these two expressions of anger naturally. 
and they really do feel natural to us, even justified most of the time. We must be vigilant and intentional about putting off these tendencies. All right, the second grouping um, of words that we're looking at are the ways in which our anger is expressed. All right, so the wrathful, rage-filled person will likely tend towards clamor, while the bitter, resentful person is probably more inclined towards slander. So we'll unpack what those words actually mean. So the word here translated as clamor literally, literally refers to raising your voice. Um, and in the context here, we can imagine as, as giving someone a piece of your mind. Um, we all know someone who is uh, disproportionately aggressive and combative. And if you can't think of one, then you might be one. <laughs> you might be the kind of person where people can actually watch your blood pressure rising physically as the veins in your forehead start to throb and you turn purple. Um, and everyone knows to get out of the way because you're about to unleash. The NIV actually translates this word here as brawling. And I suspect that the reasoning for this is to further illustrate the comprehensiveness of Paul's thought here. Um, I think it's safe to say that Paul would have included physical violence in his list of ways not to treat one another. Um, but either way you render it, the images of a, a hot-headed person going off and doing damage. Slen uh, slander, rather, on the other hand, also comes in many forms. And this is speech that denigrates or defames the reputation of another. And uh, full disclosure, I tend to, towards this sort of side of the spectrum, the bitter, avoid confrontation at all costs, uh, stuff down my feelings and hope they just disappear kind of side of the spectrum. And so this is familiar to me, and I'll just speak from my personal experience. Um, when I feel like I have been wronged by someone, I tend to cram it down, and my instinct is to give people the silent treatment. Um, and if I do say anything, it generally comes out in the form of, of passive, aggressive, or sarcastic comments designed to cut. And I used to truly believe that my approach to anger was virtuous, and it was taking the high road, because after all, Proverbs says that good sense makes someone slow to anger, right? And it's to his glory to overlook an offense. Um, James 1 encourages us to be slow to speak and slow to anger, and these are very true things, but I was absolutely deluded to believe for even one second here, right? Because on the inside, while I was silent on the outside, on the inside, I was there's this seething rage building in my heart, and um, after almost a decade of marriage and being a parent for many of those years, um, I'm probably more tempted to think that if I were the kind of person who vented my anger outwardly and just got it over with, it might even be better. But uh, Paul doesn't agree. Paul says that both of these types of anger have to go. And so lastly, um, in the text, we turn to the common denominator in everything that we've been talking about so far, and that is malice or malicious intent. Malice is the harboring of ill will against others. It is the desire to cause pain and to see the other person hurt. As Pastor Paul 
uh, mentioned in his sermon last week, he was talking about corrupting speech, and he said this, this attitude uh, of wanting to cut someone else down to size ultimately reveals a desperately insecure heart. Right? But we do not have to be this way. As Christians, we have been given an identity that cannot be taken away from us by anyone, no matter what they do to us. We have ultimate security in Christ. We do not have to indulge our hair-trigger instincts to defend our own honor anymore. We are not slaves to our circumstances. If Jesus sits on the throne of your heart, then you no longer have to live for your own honor and glory. You've been set free and empowered to bring him honor and glory with your whole life. And this truth causes a fundamental shift in our heart orientation from being all about me to considering the needs of others without the distraction of having to always keep score. When we are joined together in Christ, we are freed from the tyranny of self. So that's what we put off. All right, let's look at verse 32 for what we're being told to put on here. So verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What does this identity look like in real time? Paul says that we should be kind to one another. Or uh, perhaps a more accurate way to read this is becoming kind to one another. Remember, Paul is no fool. Paul understands that we are all works in progress. We are in the process of becoming who we are in Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is by becoming kind to one another. Kind, as an adjective, is defined uh, loving, affectionate, gentle, of a sympathetic or helpful nature. One who is kind has a special kind of wisdom. They understand the struggles of, an, of others and are quick to assume the best of others rather than the worst. There's a philosophical principle called Hanlon's Razor. And it's and it stated this way. It says, never attribute to malice that which can be explained by ignorance. And the idea is that someone may offend you without even knowing that they are doing so. You may be, rightly or wrongly, sensitive to certain things that the other person is completely oblivious to. And kind people have this as their default explanation for others' behavior. But even when people are being more obviously or blatantly uh, unkind towards them, kind people consider the ultimate good of the other over their own feelings and desires for personal vindication. Philippians 2, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is what it means to be kind. Having a heart that is easily moved in compassion towards others. Your heart readily breaks over the pain of other people. Tenderhearted people understand that hurt people hurt people. 
So when they are wronged, they move towards the other person in a desire to see their wounds healed rather than add to them. Imagine having a heart so warmed by, the, by God's affections for you, rather that you desire nothing more than for others to experience that as well. Lastly, Paul says here that we are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word here translated as forgive um, is actually a broader concept than merely forgiving a wrong. It certainly involves forgiveness. But it could be read as be gracious to one another as God in Christ has been gracious to you. And that matters because God has done more than merely forgive our debts in Christ. Right? He has, he's adopted us into his royal family. He's poured himself out for us and made us heirs of all the riches of his eternal kingdom. This, this is the kind of grace that we have been shown. And this is the pattern that he lays out for his body to follow. We are to hold nothing back in showing grace to one another. But this is incredibly hard to do. How on earth could we possibly be expected to live this out? Um, as we wrestle through this, don't make the mistake of thinking that God does not understand how hard this is. The point here and in the next couple of verses is this. God is not Ask, let's read uh, 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I was at the Ligonier's conference the last couple of days, and uh, Tim Challies was one of the speakers there. And during a panel discussion... Um, he was asked, as one of the ca uh, Canadian pastors on the panel, what he thought were the most important words of encouragement that Canadian Christians need to hear in our current cultural moment. And he said this. He said, we need to know what the Word of God says, and then we need to do it. And he wasn't being glib or reductionist. When he said that, he went on to say that we're often guilty of overcomplicating the Christian life and walk. And in my experience, he's right. We can become so paralyzed by our feeling that we lack some secret knowledge or method necessary to fulfill God's commands. And that if we just found the right devotional tool or um, fad spiritual discipline, I don't know, like spiritual goat yoga or something like that, that suddenly it would just click and it would be easy for us. The reality is that it's not easy. It's hard. But, it is, it's, but it's not complicated. Right? We persevere by resting in the comfort and security of knowing that Christ has gone ahead of us and accomplished everything necessary for our salvation on our behalf. And by this, we can know the if we just feed on this truth daily 
our hearts would be filled to the point that the gospel would naturally spill over into our relationships. Do you bask in the warmth of the Father's love for you as a beloved child? And we need to be reminded of, these, of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the twin realities of the gospel, right? That we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared imagine, but that at the very same time, we are more loved and cherished and delighted in than we ever dared hope. If you have been hanging around Grace Valley Church for a while, you've probably heard that a million times, but I won't apologize for the repetition because this is exactly what we need. We need to rehearse the gospel. We need to be reminded of it daily. We need to feed on it. We need to read it. We need to sing it. We need to pray it. We need to dwell in it. We need to hear the testimonies of others like we did this morning. If you're looking for a secret key, this is as close as you're going to get. And so let's talk about it. Right? We need to realize that the way others treat us is never ultimately our biggest problem. G.K. Chesterton, who's an author and a lay theologian, and uh, there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, it's hard to corroborate, but apparently the London Times once sent a letter out to a number of uh, respected authors in the area asking them to write an essay answering the question, what is wrong with the world? And supposedly, G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter back to them, and this is what it said. Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And he may have been being cheeky, but he has a point. Right? G.K. Chesterton understood that our biggest and most urgent problem is our own sin. We all owe an insurmountable debt for our rebellion against the holy and eternal creator. And realization of this gives us fresh perspective on the finite wrongs that the pain of our experiences in any way. But this ought to contextualize them for us. And it prepares us to hear the good news of the gospel and to really understand the sweetness of it because once you understand the depth of your personal need only from that place can you really taste the sweetness of the gospel and that is that God in Christ has forgiven you completely though you didn't deserve it Christ gave himself up as a sacrifice to God on our behalf and his sacrifice has been accepted as a fragrant offering, holy, pleasing, and satisfying to God. And he now looks on us through that lens. Soak in that reality for a moment. Sometimes, sometimes I reflect on my own life, and I can't help but be filled with shame and regret over things that I have said or done or thought, ways that I've grievously sinned against God and against others. 
And I can begin to wallow in the shame of it because I know in my heart of hearts that I do not deserve to be forgiven. I do not deserve to even ask for forgiveness. And can remain there for extended periods of time, but then somehow by some means and usually through the kindness and tenderheartedness of other people towards me, God reminds me of the staggering beauty of the reality that in Christ, he has forgiven me. And not just in an impersonal and judicial sense either. Rather, picture, picture the famous scene when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Right? And he comes up out of the water and the heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and the voice of God proclaims, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Because Jesus has offered himself up for us as a fragrant offering, we have been welcomed into the pleasure that the Father has expressed over Jesus. He has welcomed us back into his precious presence as beloved children. He rejoices over his people. You and I was singing. That's from Zephaniah 3. He considers us to be his treasured possessions. That's all over Deuteronomy. He, he considers us to be the riches of his glorious inheritance. That's Ephesians 1.18. If this truth doesn't break you, you need to make sure you have a pulse. And it is this love that Paul is pointing to when he tells us to walk in love as Christ loved us. Filled with this knowledge of this reality, how can we hold anything over our spiritual siblings, our fellow beloved children of God? We have been free kindness and tenderheartedness. We are joined together in Christ and now share in the benefits of his sacrifice. God is so satisfied and delighted and pleased in you and me. So let's live into this reality together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe at the immeasurable kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness that you have displayed to us in Jesus. We are undeserving rebels, yet you call us your beloved children. How can we respond to that other than to fall to our knees in worship? Lord, melt our hearts by our encounter with you and your word. Teach us to feast on the life-giving words of the gospel of Jesus and to embody it more and more as you carry on your transformative work in our hearts. Father, we love you and we praise you. Amen.